Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Love Extremist Radio. I am so excited today to be at the house with Erica Williams-Simon. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> Erica is a writer, host, and educator focused on helping people access wisdom to live better lives. She is the author of You Deserve the Truth, Change the Stories that Shaped Your World and Live a World-Changing Life and most recently was the founder and head of the Creators Lab at Snapchat, a first-of-its-kind program and physical space for young creatives to be inspired and connected. As a Washington, D.C. native, she got her start in national civic and human rights advocacy and as a preacher's kid for life. (laughs) She is committed to creating sacred space for questions, conversation, and story about who we are and how we want to live. Me. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy to finally do this. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, I'm happy to do yeah. it too. We've we're just saying how you first came to LA from DC mm-hmm. and I was one of the early folks to greet you. Yes. I mean I, I think we connected within my first two weeks being here. Yeah. Through through Global Shapers. Through Global Shapers, right. Um, and it was magic. So you were a very like high flying DC person. So like, what was that life like? <laughs> like, what were you? What was your day to day in DC? Uh, it was crazy. First of all, because it feels like truly like another life, yeah, like a world away. Um, right. But I ran a national kind of millennial policy and advocacy program for, I mean, the biggest progressive think tank. They used to call it like the White House in waiting. It was um, Clinton's chief of staff ran it. Okay. Um, And so I was the the young person there, the young woman there, and the young woman of color there. Wow. And so because of that role, I ended up being thrust out front pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, and so when the media a lot had of tokens. questions, it, it, I checked all the boxes, right? <laughs> I checked all Ooh. the boxes. Yeah. So when the media came calling and they wanted to know, you know, what is the youth vote perspective on this? What is the black perspective? What is the women's perspective? Um, they would pass me the mic. And so really early on, I ended up kind of doing national media and television mm. and press and kind of running programs really meant to kind of um, capture the millennial voice in the political conversation. Mm. And so half of my time was spent in D.C. doing that, whether that was on the Hill or on television, um, you know, kind of creating programs and projects. But the other half, and this was the part of my job that I actually did love, was traveling the country and talking to young people. Right. So um, we had a presence on like 500 campuses, but also in communities, and we would go and just talk and have conversations. And 
I was given resources to be able to fund kind of projects that young people were working on for, from everything from climate change to education reform. Uh, so that part of my, my work I absolutely loved because it was what I, I love best, which is talking to people about things that matter to them. Yeah, that's amazing. And you've always had this natural ability to hold conversation and just be a facilitator. Were you holding the mic at church as well? From the time I remember breathing, yeah. I had a mic in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. So that, that was your training ground. That was my training ground. Wow. I always said one day I'm going to write a book that says everything I need to know I learned from church. Mm. Um, because it, it wasn't about what the theology. That's a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. But the, the, kind of, the environment of church mm-hmm. taught me everything from leadership skills to public speaking Mm-hmm. to conflict resolution, to community building, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of that I learned at a very young age, kind of growing up in that environment. Was there an artistic kind of creative component as well? Absolutely. Music? I mean, everything was artistic mm-hmm. and creative from mm-hmm. music. I was a, I became a worship leader and a choir director. Yes. And, I mean, I can't dance to save my life. And yet somehow I was in the dance ministry. There was just this <laughs> sense that, um, you know, God was creative. And right. so no matter what your level of talent, it wasn't really about if you were the best at something. It was right. about if you had a heart to create and serve, then you did it. And, and also that sense of almost like you're channeling that divine creation, right? Like yes. everybody, it's not e- the ego that's that's creating. It's like you are just using your body as a creative tool, yeah. which yeah. is a very different way. When you come into L.A. and it's like, oh, here we are in a spot where everyone's like, this is my creation. Yeah, and, the, and just the idea that, that, and this was a shift for me when I moved to L.A., that to be a, I'm using air quotes, creative, mm. it meant something very specific. Right, right, right. right? It was a way of dressing and yeah. <laughs> talking, and it meant you had to make money from something, and you had a particular identity. Mm-hmm. Whereas I grew up, and it was like, we're, we are all creative. We are literally made in the image of a creator. Right. So whether you're creating space, creating family, creating art, um, you're not really thinking about it as a job necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's just a beautiful way to mm-hmm. be. Totally. It's the, I think it's the way to be personally. So you jumped into LA whole hog and had already been kind of in the mix a little bit in terms of media and tech Mm -hmm. and journalism. Um, but now I just, I want to get into that, but you're, you're moving back to the spiritual and to the sacred. What is, what has inspired that? It's so weird. Even to hear you say it back to me still feels crazy because I would have never thought that at any point in my life, my work or my profession would be grounded in faith and spirituality. And yet it feels so natural. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like that, the the idea of you, you run so far just to come back home. Yep. Like I've been everywhere. Like you said, I've been work politics and tech and the hero's journey. And yeah. (laughs) And somehow I end up right back home. Right. Um, but I wouldn't be able to be here at in the way that I am and the person I am if I hadn't taken that journey. Yeah. Um, because in some ways what, what I've seen in each of those spaces is what led me back here. So working in all of those industries, industries that, um, theoretically are on the forefront of, of cultural and social change. Absolutely. Everything is about change, right? We're, tech is about, we're changing and disrupting and politics mm-hmm. is about, you know, we're changing and transforming and in every space, I saw the same core needs, though. Mm. Regardless of the mediums and the platforms and the tools that everyone was using, I, I just saw broken people. <laughs> people, like humans, right? Forget titles, forget skill sets, just humans. What was broken? 
Uh, I mean, different things for different people, but there was always this sense of something missing mm -hmm. in people's lives. Uh, that that everyone was seeking something out of their work or out of um, kind of, you know, what they were trying to create in the world and not really finding it. Mm. And when I would try to identify, okay, what even in these systems is broken, mm -hmm. it still all comes back to people. Mm -hmm. That people were hungry for something that they weren't finding through the work that they were doing or finding through these institutions that they were trying to transform. Mm. Um, and my kind of spiritual eyes were always like, oh, you mean, you know, spirituality and faith. That's what you're looking for. Mm. And people looked at me like I was crazy. Like, right. that's not what we're doing here. Right. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. Um, and I'm like, but, but. You're so desperate for it. You're looking for it. You'll do it on the back of a bike and call it Soul Cycle. Like everywhere you go, <laughs> you are literally trying to feed your soul, but we can't talk about it. Right. Um, wow. And so I just started to feel, you know, like th this is just this big, obvious thing. That the elephant in the room. It's the elephant in the room. Um, do you think that religion, like, because you specifically don't use the word religion. I, actually, I use both. Oh, you do? I use okay. both, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm clear that there's a distinction between spirituality and faith and religion. Those are all different things. Mm -hmm. And I think they can be used together to create a really robust, healthy, spiritual life. Mm. Um, but they are all very different. Mm. Uh, religion, even though it gets a bad rap, what it actually is, and the definition I use um, came from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who okay. used to be called Dr. King's rabbi, like MLK's rabbi. Mm -hmm. um, but he basically said, look, religion is not God. Religion is just man's best attempt or human's best attempt to capture that presence and figure out how to ritualize it. Interesting. That's what religion actually is. Mm. As a tool, anything that is used by humans or created by humans will have flaws, hmm. will be imperfect. Amen. But I actually really appreciate that idea mm -hmm. that we, we're all coming together to try to figure out how do we ritualize something and pass on traditions around this and, and somehow capture this ineffable thing that we can't really see and we can't really name, but we all kind of feel, let's... Let's codify it so that we can pass it on and, and, and create collective practice around it. That's what religion should be and in theory is. And so when you kind of can own that and recognize it, then you can say, all right, so there's some stuff about it I like, some stuff about it I don't like, some stuff about it that is outdated and antiquated. But then there's some stuff about the antiquity of it and the tradition of it that I love and appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, that, though, is still very separate from your own individual spiritual journey and your formation. Right, right. right. Um, that has to do with how you feed your soul and how you grow. And you can get some of that from religion. You can get some of that other, in other ways, too. Right. It's so challenging because when I think of religion, I associate the trauma as, as an institution of that course. it is, right? And not only the institution, but just like the systems, right? And, mm -hmm. and, the, and the, the things that, that people might associate on the negative side. And obviously, as humans, we have this negativity bias. So mm -hmm. let's talk about that, right? So yeah. it's like, you know, we have an amazing day, 99% of the day, and then there's that 1% where someone cuts us off at the highway or whatever, and, and the day is ruined. Day. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And the same thing can be said for religion, right? It's like you have a couple bad apples, or maybe more than a couple, Many. and yeah, and 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 also bad experiences, and that can really taint an entire system. Um, and so, 
as I start to think about that definition, I think about, well, like love activism and love extremism to me very much ties in with those principles of looking for rituals, mm -hmm. whether it be in conversation or in music, right, in collective song or in creating space for us to open up to our hearts and reconnect with our hearts. Mm -hmm. And yet I have this like immediate reaction to using the, the R word, yeah, right? Yeah, I get it. So, I get it. so then you speak to the personal spiritual, like how is that different to you? You know, I think it's different for that very reason that it is personal, mm -hmm. right? That, that religion is typically very collective Got it. Um, and institutional. Right. And then the, the spiritual journey is the journey that you, your individual soul takes um, and how you choose to, mm -hmm. to, to grow and develop and nurture and meet those needs and heal. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it can happen outside of an institution. It can happen in relationship. It can happen um, typically. And, and again, my kind of frame of reference does use words like God and creator. I know mm -hmm. many don't, and that's totally fine. But mm -hmm. for me, it happens in that intimate relationship that you have as an mm -hmm. individual with your creator. Right. That no one else can touch, take, change, <laughs> tell yeah. you about. Um, and in some ways, I think the reason we are where we are uh, as a human race, first of all, secondly, as a country, thirdly, if we talk about religious institutions, I think part of the reason we are where we are is because we have abdicated the responsibility of our spiritual formation, right? We've turned that over to institutions, mm. and then when they didn't know what to do with it or wow. mishandled it, wow. we then were like, oh, okay, well, then I just, I guess I'm just not going to have one. Mm. Right. 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 You become um, atheist or whatever, and then it's like, eh. yeah. And then the woo 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 stuff turns us off. Turn, woo -woo as soon as it gets to all of it turns us off, mm -hmm. and yet we're still trying to figure out how do I meet this. I believe it's a core human need. Our mm. our, our spirits need to be fed. Mm. That's where healing takes place in a in a world that really does quite often harm us, hurt us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so. Part of the, the mission that I'm on right now is to help people take charge of their own spiritual formation and make a decision that says, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to figure this out, whatever that looks like. And I'm going to mm. do it in community with others. So are you seeing, how are you seeing that manifest? Like what are the practical frames at which you're going to exercise that mission? I mean, there's a lot and I'm trying to figure it all out, right? Yeah. You're catching me literally in the moment when I'm like, okay, this is what it's going to look right. like. So there's, there's a definitely lot of definitely got a book places. there. Definitely, <laughs> got, definitely have a book there. Okay. Um, definitely have some content there, like podcasts. Mm. I really, there's a show that I want to create that actually does kind of popularize theological conversations. Nice. Um, there is a conference that I want to host, although the word conference annoys the heck out of me because mm -hmm. I think you it it just connotes something very specific that right. I, I want to bust that out. Right. But I do want to have both. a gathering. I want to yeah. bring people together. Okay. Um, and that that actually is going to be called Unboxing God. Wow. Cool. Uh, and to, just to bring together a bunch of folks who are like, I'm, let's take this all out of the box and start over and figure out what this mm -hmm. looks like. Dope. Um, so those are the pieces I'm looking at now, but cool. who knows? Who knows? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting though, like those are all coming from a frame of someone who has kind of worked in a bunch of different spaces and places. You, it's kind of, they're, they're not tethered, right? It's not like you're setting up a shop. Right, right. Right. Or, you know, you still kind of like those are those are all opportunities for you to work independently for the most part yes. and then bring on team members as needed exactly. for different things. So yeah. that's really awesome. Scary. Man, I, I want to be part of the <laughs> unboxing God team. Oh, you will be. Oh, wow. Be. That sounds amazing. <laughs> awesome. Um, so 
Let's go back a little bit into your life, um, building up where the being part of kind of the journalistic side, but also like the tech world and Snapchat. Yeah. Like how th- there was a lot of interface, I'd say, from my, where I sit between kind of activism and creation and the digital sphere. Mm-hmm. How effective in making change yeah. do you think that really was or is? I think it was and can remain really effective mm-hmm. um, if we... I think humans, we have a tendency to go all or nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's like the pendulum tends to swing too far one direction. Right. And so in and of itself, the digital sphere is incredibly powerful right. as a tool. And we know this, right? As a tool to amplify voices, as a tool to kind of collect power from all around the world. Um, to to share stories that then inspire action. I mean, for all those reasons that we know, it's incredibly powerful and valuable. Mm-hmm. I think two things happen. One, again, the pendulum can swing a little too far that direction, and then we we have that separate from you know physical on the ground community mm-hmm. building and organizing. Right. It, that separation is dangerous because mm-hmm. then it's hard to actually build that power. Mm-hmm. So I think that happened. But the second thing, and, and this is. I'm sure there were voices out there who were warning us, but I don't know if many of us listened, was just the corporate influence in the platforms that we were using. Right. Fundamentally, right? right. So it's not about how we used our voices or, or, you know, was there a good potential or did we have the right intentions with it? Were we doing enough? It really, some of it comes down to the fact that we were doing it on platforms who had a very different mission. Mm. And, and could be bought. And could be bought, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this mission wasn't actually never... The mission of no platform is ever really to inspire freedom, to create freedom, and to help people get rights, and to mm-hmm. help people fight for it. That's not the mission of a company. I don't know that it ever will be. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we, we, we forgot that. Uh, and, and now we're in this moment when we see what can happen or what happens when this is where we harness all of our voice and all of our power and it's owned by someone else. So what's really exciting and interesting to me is that we're speaking in the past tense about these digital platforms and tools. Yeah. And it's almost as if 2020, we recognize that these platforms have been bought. So what is the new model of power for distributing messages of activism of change of evolution because it still feels like we're stuck in these old models right we definitely are and i don't have the i don't know i don't know what the new model is i mean yeah. what, do you, what do you think because i think everyone everyone's trying to figure it out well i think your instinct is absolutely on point in regards to coming back to the spiritual but to me what that means um, is also coming back to the communal mm-hmm. and communal mm-hmm. in, in physical space. Yes. And so, yes. so people are hungry to reconnect in real time and see each other as people, as humans again. Yes. And in my view, we are going to see this next decade as a time of reconnecting to each other yeah. in physical space with intention right. and not necessarily with all the digital accoutrement, mm-hmm. but rather with the focus on each other. Yeah. Um, and learning the, the technology of our spirits and our souls connecting. Right. And many of us have held that thread throughout or were lucky enough to have been brought up in cultures that taught us that from a young age. Yeah. 
But there's so many of us who have experienced purely technologically driven lives, mm -hmm. especially the generations below us, where it's like, okay, it's going to become en vogue to drop the phone and, and just like step into a space that is actually like fully EMF free, yeah. I believe. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and get into it not only from like a, a health perspective, but also like, well, it is, it's a health requirement. Mm -hmm. Like loneliness is a factor of... For people die because they're lonely, yeah, right? As yeah. as they get older and they lose their communities and their spouses and their partnerships, so it's it's. I think that's to me what's happening. I think it is too, and I also, if we get to that point, and we we like I said, many of us are already there, and I think culturally and generationally speaking, that's where we are now is recognizing that and saying we need to get we need to get in person, we need to get mm -hmm. offline and in person. If we get there and have the intentionality around that experience, adding tech to that can be helpful. For sure. There's um, a writer and thinker named Alex Wolf. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with her? She's so, she's so dope. She's like, she's this chick from Brooklyn who is just, she's like a technologist and internet thinker. Cool. And anyway, she's right now working on this project that's all around human, what it looks like to have human-friendly tech, like tech that actually... Uh -huh. Um, makes us enjoy being human more. Yep. And her whole philosophy is that most of the tech that we currently enjoy, we enjoy because it makes us feel less human in some way. That it, totally. it, it removes us from having to look one another in the eye. Mm -hmm. Once we get back to what we are intended to do as humans, then we can say, okay, how can technology amplify this experience? And yep. I think that'll be a really interesting way to live. Absolutely. It's so interesting you say that because I think about it just in the context of this podcast um, I don't like to, I have never done an interview that's not in person mm -hmm. and people are Same like, can I, podcast, I, don't, I refuse to do them. Right. Yeah. Cause people are like, yo, can I, can, can I introduce you to someone who's, you know, in another city? It's like, yeah, if I get there, if they come to LA, we can have a podcast. But like, for me, this is a meditation yeah. and it's an engagement one-on-one -on -one. and the magic of this. And I hope all you listening agree, like we're able to react to each other in real yeah. time with our bodies and with our, you know, what we're going, what we're speaking to. Yeah. In a much deeper way. And I think tech is getting there. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, with Skype and FaceTime and all that, we can, we can get close. But ultimately, I don't know, being in the same room has a certain magic to it. It does. And you can't beat that. It does. Yet. <laughs> no, you can't. You really can't. I'm right. Just, I'm the same way. Like with the podcast, I was like, I just, I have to see you. Right. But ultimately, it's not, it's, it, it's to our benefit as humans but also, I think it's to the benefit of whatever you're creating. There's mm. something like you just said. There's magic in it. That magic can be, again, hopefully felt yeah. in the final product in right. what you are offering to people. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So here we are. It's Love Extremist Radio. Love I have it. to ask you yeah. the most important. Well, there's two important questions that I ask every guest, but um, I really want to know how you define love. This is such a hard question. It's hard because you, you don't stop and think about the definition of it much. Mm -hmm. You just, it, it, it is, you right. know. But if I had to define it, um, I would say love is what, love is your natural reaction to recognizing and seeing someone how God sees them, mm. right? Like when you can see the divinity of any and everything, love just happens. Like it, mm. it is, it is what your body does. It's what your heart does. It's what your spirit, your soul does. 
Uh, and then there are different ways to express that, and that's different types of love, right? Mm. But I think I, I just think it's an organic reaction to seeing the divinity in, in any and everything. Mm. Love just comes. Oh, I lo- that's a beautiful definition. That's really, really I'm great. I'm winging it, but that's what I really believe, but I've never thought about it or put words to it before. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you can cross the spectrum of folks that I've interviewed, and I think many would agree with you that that is a really true kind of essence from people who, you know, get there through taking plant medicine mm-hmm. or through religion or through, you know, reading bell hooks and others, right? Like there's so many different methods to get to this place. I do I do think a lot about like that divinity that exists in all and then also like the potential of it. Mm-hmm. You know? And maybe that's the same thing, right? It's mm-hmm. like the, the the divinity is encompasses the potential. Yeah. Right? Because it's yeah. like we can come back to it's not even that like we've never been there. It's almost like a returning to our grace, to our our divinity, we our, our create, creative selves. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's who we are. Yeah, I love that. So then the next part, what are you an extremist for? Okay, this is also a funny question because I realized how much of my life I've spent making clear that I'm not an extremist. <laughs> right? Because when you, like, so from a political background, when I'm on the left, and my politics are pretty on the left, right? Like, right. I always want to tell people, oh, but I'm not, like, too extreme. Yeah, yeah. Or from a religious standpoint, when I interact with people, I have to always make very clear, like, yeah, no, like, I look, one of my favorite writers says, I look Godward through Christ, but I'm not, like, a crazy religious extremist. So mm-hmm. I'm always rejecting that term. So to now embrace it, I'm like, what am, what am I actually an extremist for? Um, I think it goes back to what I, what we were talking about earlier. I'm an extremist for people um, tapping into and accessing their spiritual selves, like at, at any cost. I want you to figure it out. I don't care what it looks like, and like I'm I'm crazy extreme about that, and even about that pursuit in my own life. Yeah. Um, How did it first happen for you? Do you can do you have a story of like you tapping into your spiritual self? Hmm. Okay, I do. It's going to sound a little weird, but yeah, I do. Let's go. So, so when I was a kid, so my parents were pastors. Right. Um, and my father, who passed away when I was 16, was like just my everything, my world. I was such a daddy's girl. And um, and he was, a, I mean, he was like, like a youth pastor vibe. So like hip and young and really cool. He passed away at 42. So in my mind, he was still like very young. Wow, yeah. Um, but looking back now, like in 2020, like I'm sure his, he wasn't like super progressive theologically. Like I think he was like a, a Pentecostal Baptist preacher. Um, and so we were in the car one day. Mm-hmm. I was like 10 maybe. And there's this thing in, um, in Christianity and in particularly in like Pentecostal evangelical Christianity called like the, the gifts of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And these are supposed to be physical manifestations or evidence, evidences of your relationship with the Holy Spirit, right? Mm. And you know, they write about them all in the Bible and it was like this thing called speaking in tongues which a lot of evangelical churches to this day actually still practice. And it's, it's this idea that there's a language that comes from you that no one else can understand, but only you and not, not even really you all the time, but it's just God. Yeah. And so we were in the car and I was 10 and I was like, daddy, I want to speak in tongues. He was like, I'm sorry. What? What? Like, do you even know what that means or what that is? And I was like, no, but I really, really want to do it. And I think he was just humoring me because he was like, all right. So we, we pulled over on the side of the road and he was like, well, let's pray. And I was like, okay. 
So I remember he laid his hands on my shoulders and he prayed this amazing, was, he was the most amazing like order. And he could just, mm. th- these prayers just sounded like they were written somewhere. Mm. And he prayed this beautiful, powerful prayer. And I remember, and I probably, I don't know what I said out of my mouth. I probably said something like faking it, like I'm speaking in tongues now. But I distinctly remember the feeling that ran through my body when he was praying over me in the car. And I remember, like, I just, this, whatever this is, this is real and I want this. I don't know what this is. I don't know if I'm speaking in tongues. I don't know if if that's a real thing. But this thing, something's happening in this car right now. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I think so much of my spiritual journey has just been in pursuit of that sense that, that, that this is real, whatever this is. Right. You can call it what you want. We may have, you know, theological differences or I, I don't care. I want everyone to experience a this that is real. And has that, have you revisited that feeling many times in your life? Many. Can you speak to like another time when it came many. back? Um, it, you know, it's funny. It came back the night before my wedding. Nice. Okay. I was praying. I was totally by myself. Mm. Um, in our hotel room, my sister and mother and girlfriend, everyone was coming over later, but I was in the hotel room by myself and I was just praying to myself and I felt it again run through my body. Mm. Um, I feel it often when I sing. Yeah. So I still, I still sing now. I, I finally, after five and a half years, found a church that I like here in LA. Oh man. Finally. I want to <laughs> so go with you. You have to come. You have to come. And I yeah. still sing there. What so kind I'm of church is it? Team. It's non-denominational Christian. Nice. Um, predominantly black, but there's, there's some like pockets of diversity in it. Um, and it's out in Long Beach. Dope. And so when I'm singing, mm. It, it feels like ecstasy, like mm-hmm. when I'm singing, and not just when I'm singing anything, but what specifically when I'm singing worship music or I'm singing, and it doesn't have to be in church. Mm-hmm. Like it can be. I looked back at they said my most played songs on Spotify last year, and I was like, oh, I hope it's like Ari Lennox or something really cool. No, it was meditation music. I was playing <laughs> it throughout my entire year, just singing to yeah. myself all day long. Beautiful. And when that happens, I also feel that same sense. Mm. Wow. And is there a specific type of meditation music that you get down with? Or- Literally anything. anything. Piano. I mean, I I just ordered Tibetan singing bowls because I'm going to learn how to play. Sweet. Any any music that is geared towards meditation, I love. Wow. Do you feel as though there is a value in aligning one's um, cultural identity with religious identity? For example, like me saying, like here I'm, I'm, you know, a white Jewish guy Mm -hmm. who is very interested in black church music Mm -hmm. and like loves that feeling and can relate. And like from a young age, like my best friend in in kindergarten's father was a pastor and he took me to the Baptist church and Uh I sang in the gospel choir and it was the best thing in the world. And that stuck with me. And I still like miss that and want that in my life and recognize like, you know, that's not, not right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like a redheaded Jew sticking out like a sore thumb. So I guess like, what's, what's your thought on that alignment or not? You know, do you think that's important? I think it's nice when it happens. Mm. I don't think it's essential, Mm. but I, I I love when it happens when Mm. there is that natural alignment with your, your cultural heritage um, and those experiences and traditions that bring you closer to your creator. I think mm. that is just the best feeling in the world. But I also see incredible value. Again, my motto is find it where you get it, where you find it. Mm. So I don't know that that matters that much. 
Mm. Um, and also, like, how do we define cultural heritage, right? Because, like, Christianity is relatively not, new. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's actually not my cultural. It is, it is my frame of reference, right, as being mm-hmm. an American-born black person. Right. Um, in your 30s. Right, in my 30s. But it is absolutely not. Like, if you trace our heritage back as African-Americans. Right. Um, which I also think is really, really powerful to do because the idea of syncretism, right, taking... Um, ancient African traditions and rituals and blending them, mm-hmm. that actually is how different faiths are practiced around the world. That's If you mm-hmm. look at and see where Christianity is practiced in different places mm-hmm. around the world, it's not yeah. what you think it is. Right. Same with Judaism, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating to see actually how we... We, whether we want to or not, I mean, like, there's all, always the extremists, right, who are like, no, stay by the book. Yes. But so often, it's impossible, right? And culture comes in relative to where you are, and, and, and things kind of blend. Um, so do you feel, you feel as though it's important, though, to maintain those traditions and kind of, like, hold on to the values of kind of history and historic religious tradition rather than maybe blend it all into one collective spirituality? I find value in it. Yeah. I find value in holding on to traditions. But at the same time, you know what's funny? I, 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 I literally just tweeted today. So you heard the um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle news? A little bit, but why don't you... <laughs> okay, so... So they have come out, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, Princess, or Duchess, Duchess. Right. Um, they've come out and said that they are stepping down as senior royals. Right. And that they are going to maintain a double occupancy, but spend half of their time in North America. And, and you know, this is very dramatic and no other, you know, prince has done this before. And But what I tweeted, I said, there is such religious significance in this because mm. you can still honor and appreciate your tradition. Mm while also seeking that which makes you whole. And you can hold both of those at the same time. Wow. And so I, I, I really do value tradition. But tradition is not meant to be a prison. Yes. <laughs> right. I can hold it and honor it and still step outside of it when totally. I need to. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful point, is that like these traditions become anchors and off, often like opportunities with which we can ground mm-hmm. um, and find kind of root. But also, um, those it's almost like thinking about art. Mm-hmm. Like, we create better when we have boxes a little bit and, yeah. like, certain parameters. Yeah. And yet, you want to still have the space to dance, the space to, to play and be free and to improvise. Right. And so, yeah, it's almost like these structures in, in religion provide that. Would you say that that showed up in other contexts when you were operating in government or in business, that there were certain structures that you kind of take with you that, you know, you would like to continue to bring into Mm. your future endeavors? That's a good question. Uh, Ask it again, because I'm thinking about, yeah. So in the frame of, like, politics Mm -hmm. as an institution or tech and business as an institution... Are there traditions that you take with you and that you want to bring into the future as part of your repertoire? Yes, yes. Okay, I love that. Um, so from a business standpoint, I love, I love the practice and the actual ritual, right, of um, 
of, of measuring and evaluating impact mm, mm. of kind of periodically looking at how you are working, how you are living and seeing if it is having the intended result as opposed to just kind of living life and doing it and never reviewing it. And mm-hmm. I think in business, in a good business, mm-hmm. that is ritualized. There is a consistency with which you evaluate whether something is working or not working. Right. Uh, and so I really appreciate that and, and have kind of adopted that in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, in politics, it's, it's a bit different because I found the boxes to be harmful in a lot of ways, but what I love is there's a very clear sense when you work in politics of, um, needing to know at any given moment what your values are Mm. and who your people are. Those are the two things that I take from politics that I think are really helpful when used properly. So when I say who your people are, I don't mean necessarily who shares the same label, but there was a sense of needing accountability. If you were going to move out and pursue a particular policy or a particular campaign, you better not do it unless you had people, unless you knew who the base was, unless you knew who, who is this benefiting, who is the movement, who has your back, who are your people? Mm. Um, I think Ella Baker, Ella Baker, the legendary civil rights activist used to always ask that. She said, when she would meet someone new and they would want to come into the movement, the first question she would ask them is, who are your people? Mm, that's so interesting. And I love that idea of, of, of always making sure that I know who my people are, who I'm accountable to, mm. who, um, you know, even as I travel far and go back out into the world, like my, my family, th- those are my people. Mm. Like I, I, I always think about how, how is what I'm doing impacting them or re- related to them or... Um, you know, how far is it taking me from them? This is idea of having people, I think is so, so important. If you are always identifying and knowing and connecting with who your people are, does that then mean that you are also as clearly articulate and identified in who your people are not? And see, that's the part where it gets a little scary. Right. And it's very scary in politics, I think. Yeah. Um, that's dangerous. That's yeah. dangerous, and I think it, it, it is an unintended consequence sometimes of that, mm. of that thinking. Um, Maybe there's a reframing yeah. opportunity. Sorry to cut you off. No, just, just to think, like, how do we grow my people? <laughs> right? Oh, I like that. You know, like, how can everybody become, you know, part of that? Like, what is necessary mm-hmm. to welcome everybody into the dinner table or whatever it might be? Yeah. And, I mean, I will, I will admit, this is the part that I struggle the most with because... Um, based on where my politics are, based on what's happening in the world, uh, even though, yes, I'm, you know, I'm like you, a love extremist. Yeah. I do still very much struggle with the idea of all for one, one for all. When, when there are, when there are people actively threatening the humanity of others, I find it very hard to say yes. And you two are my people. Mm -hmm. And again, from a spiritual standpoint, I can say why that's true, mm-hmm. but walking out in the world on a daily basis, I really do. That's just my own personal struggle that I still wrestle with saying mm. like, oh, you, you also are my people, even though you hate gays and you're trying to kill black people and like all these things and still saying like, you're in some way my people too. Like I, I'm not there yet. Right. Yeah. Well, and I question if that is a place we want. I don't know. Do we want to be there? Is that good? Is that bad? Well, ultimately, I think the question that I would ask is, going back to your definition of love, if you can find the divinity in those people who are not your people, does that then create more access points with which you can make them your people? I don't know. I know that it means, I know that 
what love looks like. We grew up what love looks, justice is what love looks like in public, but to extend beyond that, like that there's a sense of honoring the divinity in, in everyone. There's a sense of respecting that. Does that automatically make you my people? Does that mean I'm accountable oh, no, to you? Absolutely not. Right. No. And there's, so, there's like a bridge to cross there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think that's, that's part of, uh, the journey of building community and figuring out, frankly, how do we all live in this place together? Right. And what does that bridge look like? Right. You know, I think that's what we're like, the trip we're both on is like, all right, how do we discover the right tools to activate folks to recognize, oh, I actually want to be mm-hmm. going to that church. I actually want to be sitting in that living room and, and participating in that conference, you know, yeah, um, reading that book, whatever it might be. So going back to what you said about measurement and technology, you were one of the founders of Upworthy. And Not a founder, but I was there pretty early, yeah. Okay, so Not you're an early stage at mm-hmm. Upworthy, which I really love as one of the platforms that was focused on positive content, yes, right? Yes. And, and, and really like empowering messages. Yes. How did you find that work out and the measurement of that? <laughs> like. What what was the response? Because, you know, we mentioned our negativity bias earlier. Like, we all know, you know, like, bad news sells. Yeah. So how did how did that experiment play out in your view? I have such amazing thoughts of and memories about um, Upworthy, which, by the way, does still exist, but it's just a little bit different now. It's owned by Good. Right. And they don't do as, as much, if any, original content anymore. So mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not really sure kind of what it looks like today. But mm-hmm. um, I think that experiment played out well on one level and another level it didn't. Mm. The way it played out well was people were responsive because people were actually hungry for positive content. Right. People wanted it. Yeah. It actually worked. Okay. Um, Did advertisers get buy-in? This is here. This is where you get, <laughs> right? So the challenge is market. The mm-hmm. challenge is market. The challenge was um, being a tech company with all the pressures of a tech company in mm-hmm. this era, mm-hmm. which I, I mentioned this term earlier, but just the idea of scale, 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 scale. And at what cost? Mm. So when scale is your number one goal, yeah. even though, of course, internally we said, no, our number one goal is to generate empathy. Our number one goal is to spread you know, positive messaging. And that, that was, but it was a company still. Totally. And so you're, you, you are beholden to investors. You need to make money. You need to work with advertisers. And the particular moment that Upworthy found itself in was right as publishers were trying to figure out how do we engage with Facebook. Mm-hmm. And so that wow. rapid, rapid growth of yeah. at the time, I don't know if they still hold this title, but at the time was the fastest growing media company in, in history. Mm. That was due in part to Facebook. And mm. when Facebook's algorithm changed and when Facebook decided, no, we want to do something different. We don't want, we don't want to privilege, you know, um, publications. We don't, there was just a whole lot of transition that happened in the media industry at large. Right. But Upworthy suffered so much from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, no, it didn't, it didn't succeed in the way that I think anyone originally envisioned. But the mission and finding resonance with people who just wanted to see something positive and something uplifting, to me that was really promising. And, so, and I think other people also latched on to that. Right. Now in most major publications, there is a section or a platform or a portion of their content that is devoted to that mm-hmm. ethos. Totally. So if you were to like start from scratch and say like okay like I want to put good quality like uplifting content out into the universe yeah. with that mission would you approach it differently how would how would you go about it Oh yes I would approach it very differently but 
even at thinking about it as an individual and not necessarily just as a, a kind of a, a big massive company, I I don't know that that the content itself and even forget to be totally honest, we talk about it just as as positive content. But really, right now, all digital content is struggling to figure out how right. to be self-sustaining. Totally, totally. Let alone positive, right? Right. But even even not positive, even yeah. trashy content, yeah. even you know unhelpful content. None of no one has figured out how to make it profitable and sustaining yet. And I think the the, the truth of that, is, let alone good journalism. Totally. Good journalism can't figure out how to fund itself. Right. So I think what we're leaning towards is that these these type of offerings that are either public goods, which is what journalism is, or art and creativity, I don't know that, that there is market sustainability for them alone. I think what we have to figure out is what other things can be sold to help support and fund mm, this work. Wow. That's so interesting because we always have this, as entrepreneurs, we have this feeling of like, how do we monetize our offering and not, you know, like the offering itself must be valuable, right? right? And ultimately what you're saying is like, actually... No, you got to find, like, you got to subsidize it somehow. I think so. I think so. And, and not that, I, that there's no value in it. Right. But I don't know if it'll ever have the, the, the value that matches the cost of creating it. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yet, those same, perhaps, like, feelings of empathy or goodness or value... Uh, self-worth, um, self-actualization do come up in contexts like spiritual communities. Yes. And there's plenty of money and business models that <laughs> yeah, are working there, is. there. There is, there is. But they're, even then, they're not, they're, not, they're not selling the experience. Like, let's, let's take the kind of megachurch model, right? Yeah. The church itself, theoretically, is free. Anyone can walk in. Right. Everybody doesn't have to tithe. Anyone can walk through the door. Right. Where's the money coming from, right? The yeah. money is still this idea of the community has to fund the thing. Mm-hmm. The community has to decide that whatever they're getting, be it, whether it be the community, whether it be products, whether it be access, whatever it is, is worth funding. Right. Um, but many, the majority of churches in this country are less than 100 people and, are, and have no full-time staff. Right. So even though we see these examples of, oh, there's a lot of money there, there's a lot of money there, the truth is the majority of spiritual enterprises yeah. in this country are not Thank you for saying profitable. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to recognize that. We, 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 we see the outliers, not the normal. That's yeah. right. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and speak on something that um, is maybe a little bit closer to home in terms of mortality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you have experienced loss in your life with your father, as you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and perhaps others in your family and, and close mm-hmm. to you. Um, how has that shifted your outlook and maybe perspective on love or on purpose? Mm-hmm. What? So many ways. So... Um... I think the purpose piece is first. Yeah. I, I, so my father passed away when I was 16. Right. It made no sense to me. I mean, I, I to this day, have never experienced anything more confounding and shocking in my life. Uh, and when it happened, it almost instantly, I went into purpose and legacy mode. Well, he... He called you to that, didn't he? Called he called me to that. Can you just explain? That. Yeah, I mean, so his, um, so he actually passed away while preaching in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. So good. And his sermon was the last sermon he gave, obviously, and he was talking about the potential for new life, how anyone through God 
had the potential to create and start a new life in any moment, that your past didn't define you. And he literally said the words, new life, and he said it twice. And the second time saying it, he clutched his chest and had sudden cardiac death right in the, in the pulpit. And so his last words were new life. I'm, I have chills. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, it sounds like it came out of a movie, but it was, it was, it was real, real life. And that was the message that we were left with. Okay, that your past doesn't define you, and then in any moment, you have the power to create a new life. <sighs> All right, <laughs> here we go. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also to think that that was his mission while he was here on Earth was helping other people realize that. Right. And so I kind of adopted that as my mission. Mm-hmm. And you speak to that in your book. Exactly. But in, in, at any point recognizing that we have the power to write a new story for ourselves, for our community, for our world. That was the mission that I carried with me in politics. The mission I carried with me working with creatives in tech. Whatever it was, it was that you actually do have the ability and the power and the choice to write something new for yourself and for our collective. Mm. And so I I took that on. I didn't know what that meant. I was 16. I didn't know what that meant professionally. I hadn't even gone to college yet. Mm-hmm. But I just knew that no matter what I did, I did not have time to waste on things that didn't have meaning and mean eternal meaning. That was really my framework. That if it doesn't have eternal significance, I don't want to do it because I don't know when this whole thing is over. <laughs> that is the most potent lesson that consistently comes up and I can totally relate is like, we don't have time. You know, like, let's go. Mm-hmm. You know, death is promised. It is. And, and you know, as soon as soon as we can get over that, we can get to work. We can get to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the downside, as I also write my book, was that it also kind of put... We talk about people putting a battery in your back, but sometimes that battery makes you move too quickly through mm, life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I, I always felt like the clock was chasing me. Mm. Because I was so stuck on all the things he thought he was going to get to do that he didn't get to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I actually moved through my 20s on autopilot. Wow. Like, not even appreciating life. I, there was no stop and smell the flowers for me. It was like, let's move, let's move, let's move, let's do something, let's do something, right, whatever right, it is. Right. Um, and so in my 30s, that's when I finally started to wrestle with that and say, well, I don't know if that was really the point. I don't know <laughs> if that's yeah. the way to live either. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so there, there, there are great things I took from that, but also a, a sense of almost impending doom Mm. that made me have to feel like I needed to rush for a while. Wow. And so I had to let that go. I had to let that go. And you've, I mean, certainly you've spoken about meditation and church, but like, how did you get to that process of letting it go? What were some of the ways that helped Um, you? So yeah, so meditation and church and prayer and music and all those wonderful things. Um, But I I really credit the people in my life for that. Mm -hmm. I credit Allende, my husband, who Mm -hmm. has been with me since I was 17 Mm -hmm. and kind of has seen all these phases and cycles and Mm -hmm. really was constantly, you have to slow down. You Mm -hmm. have to slow down. Wow. It is not healthy for you. It is not, right? Because the flip side of my father passing was that I believe the level of stress that he was under contributed to that. Wow. And so Allende said to me, he was like, okay, yeah. Babe, you, you see the path you're on? This like this mission-driven, purpose-filled path is wonderful, but you have to do it differently. Yeah. So you met Ayenda just after your father passed away. I met him in high school, yeah. 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 Can we just like double-click on that for a second? Let's double-click. Uh, so high school sweetheart, like, school how did, sweetheart. like how long were you together before you decided to get married? Uh, we got married 
12 years. 12 years. 12 years. And you were together that entire time? Yeah, we broke up for like a couple weekends every now and then. A couple weekends. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, because we were mad at each other. But yeah, we, wow. were, we were, because we truly were best friends. Like we, we I, I say high school sweetheart, but in high school we were just best friends. Yeah. Um, and when it was time to graduate, I was, you know, class president, miss, you know, Naturally. school spirit. And he was like, basketball, too cool for school, like whatever. And I was like, it. no, 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 no. You're going to prom. You're, you're going. Like, I don't care how cool you think you are and how corny this is, we're going to prom. And so he's like, okay, well, if you go with me. So we went as friends. Oh, cool. Um, and then and then things progressed from there. But, mm. but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very weird. It is not the norm. Yeah. But it, it worked because he truly was and is my friend. Mm. And so we've evolved. I mean, I'm a very different person than I was. Right. I at 17. If you're, if you're not a different person, then something's wrong. You yeah. should change and evolve. You've been through multiple lives. Multiple lives that have many more to go. Right. Uh, and the, the beauty of our relationship, but also, frankly, just the challenge of relationships, period, is can you be with the same person who is not the same person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and support them through that and shift. Support them through that, and and you just hope at every stage when you find the person that you want to go on that journey with, you really do just hope at every stage that it's going to still work when you're your next person and they're their next person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Will and Jada said that. Oh well, I heard them say that kind of Oprah ten years ago. And they're like, nice. You just have to start a new relationship every couple of years. And I took that to heart. I was like, okay, we're different people now. Let's start this thing over. Let's figure out what are our new norms and. And, and who are you and what do you need and who am I and what do I need and can we each live with that? Wow. And it has worked out. Do you have ritual around that? Like, do you actually like sit down and have... I wish we did. I mm. wish we did. Instead, it usually like becomes necessary. When right. you're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are we fighting? Oh, it's because you've changed. Let's, let's check in. <laughs> <laughs> let's check in. Yeah. Because we're like, you're going through yeah. life yeah, yeah. and then you see friction and you're like, what's going on? Oh, you, you're different now. Oh, God, I got it. So you stop and, and then we're smart enough now to recognize what that is and then we'll sit and have a conversation about it. It's so amazing that it's almost beyond like the change in itself, but rather the tool with which you have to recognize that change has occurred yeah. and then to write the ship. That is what keeps the relationship on track or on bo- like healthy, yeah. right? It's like communication consistently in relationships and in interpersonally in friendship in any type of context, it feels as though communication is at the root, right? And recognizing, oh, we got to communicate. Yes. We got to like share our truth. Yeah. And so often like I associate that as another definition of love, like just your truth, right? Your truth is loving, even if it hurts, right? Even if it's not in alignment with someone else anymore, it's like, yeah, this is my truth right now. And me sharing it with you is a a degree of trust, right? Requires a certain level of trust and also authenticity. Yes. And we're so often afraid of that. That's the other key. The the key, you said the T word, which is both Mm. truth, but also trust. Mm, Yeah. That you are with someone that you can trust to share your truth. Yes, right. You know, the right. overused phrase of safe space, that you, that is so essential. Yep. And I think that was something that we were able, um, I don't really think through any, you know, acumen of our own. It just so happened that we were able to really trust one another very early on. Mm. And that has been central to our relationship. It's just been a, a trust that I know no matter what, what happens, no matter who I am, no matter what I tell you, like this is, this is family. Like this is, mm. um, wow. and so that's really important. Absolutely. That's great. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that that having that level of trust so that it is safe, so that you can really express your truth is so important. I, I have this naive, naivete that I want to trust everybody uh-huh. and then like, <laughs> you know, realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that sometimes. Right. Um, but I still want to and I don't want people to like, I, I get upset when people like try to like tear down that, that impulse mm-hmm. because I want every space to feel safe and I recognize there's immense privilege in that desire and that the majority of my time has felt that way. Um, And I also want that for all. Like, I I want us to feel like we can be in our living room and, you know, it's fam, right? And, like, my people is growing, right? And it's not... So, I don't know. There's... It could be wishful thinking, but I I, I do believe um, there are pathways for us to move closer. And that's the right intent. The right intention is that everyone always feels safe. Right. That's what you want. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah. But but I think that's that's the goal. Totally. Is there an area of not there yet that has captured your attention specifically? Like a particular zone of in- inequity that you think is important to shout out? Mm, I mean, there's this is what's crazy about living in the time that we live in and also the level of awareness that we have now about yeah. every, every issue feels so right. critically important. Right. Um, I mean, because of my own identity, I just, I think a lot about young girls of color, young black girls, and just everything that they need to live and thrive in the world. So whether mm. we're talking about in education, whether we're talking about as sexual beings, whether we're talking about, um, you know, representation and seeing themselves, I just, I think about my younger self mm-hmm. and the world that I, I was... I was so incredibly privileged in that I was deeply, deeply loved and saw myself everywhere Mm. based on the community that I I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And I want every single girl to have that. Mm. So that's, that is what drives me the most when I think about, you know, a cause or a particular inequity is just creating a world where young black girls can live and thrive Yep, and all the pieces that are required to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And see role models like you. Who have done it and, and we're continue. Trying. Yeah, yeah. We're trying. And it requires us to give back and to love and to share and be honest, but also others too, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I want to support you however I can. And also just want to make sure that we articulate how can we find and support you most effectively. Yes. Um, so my website is ericawilliams.com. I'm on all social platforms at Miss Ewell, M I S S Ewell. But really, signing up for my newsletter, going to my website, is probably the best way because I I admit I have a love-hate relationship with social media. Mm -hmm. You'll find me on there sometimes and other times you will not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But definitely follow me and sign up for for my listserv. You can get um, my book, which the paperback is just now coming out in January. Amazing. Congrats. Um, You deserve the truth. And and yeah, those are all the ways. Stay tuned. Mm, beautiful. This was so fun. This Such is dope. We, I, we should be doing this all the time, even I, without a mic, right? Yo, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Um, and I have thoughts about that, actually. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, Erica Williams. This has been such a treat. Thank you for being a love extremist. Hell yeah. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. It's my joy. So take us out with your favorite love song. Ooh, what do you got? Favorite love song. Um... There's a song by an artist named Amel, Amel LaRue. Amel LaRue, okay. And the song is called Make Me Whole. All right. We'll put it on. I love it. Beautiful. Take care, everyone. Share this with your friends and leave a comment if you feel it. Adios. Darling, I want you to listen. Make me whole.
stayed up all night so I can get this thing right. And I don't think that anything missing. Cause a person like you made it easy to do. I waited for so long to sing to you. Existence, you're the 